Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Leah Walsh, and this is Rosette, the podcast. Hey folks, it's Leah. Thank you for joining us today. I'm so excited that you're with us at Rosette the Podcast. Welcome to episode, I think it's episode 18. Oh my gosh, we're getting there. That's uh that's almost 20. So like I feel I feel like I'm I'm like in the big time now or something. Um today we're gonna be talking about an idea that this actually came up when I had Kim Shakal on the the um, show from Equifruit where we were talking about um I think she said something about vertical integration. And um, this is part of what we're going to talk about today, which is the economy of scale. The economy of scale is um, something that I think is like really um, often talked about, but really seldom understood like what that actually looks like in practice. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Before I jump into it, I just wanted to say thanks to everyone for <laughs> their reactions to the Q&A. You were all very nice about how <laughs> I just basically got all the same questions. Um, but uh, yeah, and, and people seem to enjoy the episode and I really appreciate your feedback on that. Um, as per some of the suggestions, I think I will next time do a better job of promoting it like on social media because I was mostly just saying like, hey, let's have a Q&A and saying that on the podcast as opposed to like actually putting it on social and like reminding people on social to do that because they would just sort of forget. And a lot of people wrote to me afterward and like, oh, I missed it. I'm sorry. And, you know, stuff like that. So um, anyway, so thank you for letting me know. Um, and thank you also, of course, to everyone who did send in stuff. But uh, I'm sorry that I missed some of you and I'll, I'll try and do better next time. There's definitely going to be a next time, though, because like... Even just like since I've done the q and I've got a bunch more questions. So um, I will get you to resend them once I do a new call for questions for the next one, because I probably will miss something if you don't. But um, yeah, so thank you so much to everyone who's been so supportive about, you know, the Q&A episode and like the just the podcast in general so far. It's it's been really great. And I've really enjoyed sort of engaging with the community about it. It's been it's been a lot of fun. Um if you are enjoying the podcast, I'm going to do I'm going to do this thing. You know what I'm going to do. You, I've said it a million times. OK, listen, real talk, though. There are a bunch of you who are subscribed on Apple Podcasts, but who haven't left a review <laughs> like a bunch of you. Like I want to say about 80 percent of you have subscribed, but have not let a, left a review. So like, please leave a review and a rating because it helps so, so much. And like, if you love the podcast enough to subscribe, then I hope you love it enough to leave a five-star review. Um, but anyway, if there's, if there's reasons you don't love the podcast, like write to me, let me know, you know, I'll try and make it better. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, one of the, one of the main feedbacks I've actually gotten is that people want outro music. So I'm working on that, but it kind of changes sort of the way that I do my editing. So, um, I'll see if I can, I don't know if I can retroactively like add it to, the podcasts that have already released, but we'll see, um, technology and everything. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so thank you everyone for, for writing in about that and everything. And, uh, so, uh, in terms of rating and reviewing, please do do that because it helps so much to gain a little bit of visibility because I'm just a little fish in a big pond and, uh, you'll see why after today's episode, it's so hard for the small guy to compete with 
bigger companies and bigger studios and so on. And with that segue, let's get into the economy of scale. So the economy of scale, I'm going to do a quick overview of like sort of what that means. Basically, it's like it's a term that refers to how it is cheaper to be bigger essentially. Like it costs less money to do things if you do them on a really big scale. So for example, um, when Kim was talking about vertical integration, and this is a good example of um, something that's possible when you have the economy of scale on your side, she was talking about how there's all these banana companies that they're trying to compete against that are like really big companies that have been doing this for 100 years. And they're all, as she said, vertically integrated. And what that means is that Yes, they like, you know, they they buy the bananas, they or they they produce the bananas, they bring them to market, they sell them to supermarkets, etc. But there's so many steps in between and that part we call logistics. So like if you're trying to get something from Ecuador, say your bananas are in Ecuador and you're trying to get them to North America, like up in in Canada, most of the time If you're going to have a big banana company, I'm not going to name any names because (laughs) there's this one that loves to sue people as Dan Copel figured out. (laughs) But anyway, um, and so they will they will have their own ships and their own shipping containers and they will turn up at the port and they will have their own like trucks that have gone from where the producers are to the port and they will have all the bananas and they'll be able to like fill the containers and put those containers on the boat. The, the massive ship, I say boat as though it's a canoe. It is a massive ship. (laughs) It's a freighter, right? So it's a huge ship and they'll be able to send that, ship across the ocean to the destination once it hits the the shores of uh, wherever it's going. So in this case, we'll say Canada, whichever port it goes in from there, because it's on land, it's going to be transported probably by truck. Basically, like those containers will be emptied by truck after truck, like however many containers they've got, they're going to empty them into these big trucks. These, you know, you've seen them the long haul, like the big, long 18 wheeler, like trucks and they will send those bananas to each place. So for example, if they have a contract with like Metro and they have a contract with Loblaws and they have a contract with Costco and they have a contract with whomever, all of those bananas would be stuck on trucks to go to each respective place. And they probably own the trucks. So we're talking about like at no point have these bananas actually left the custody of the actual company. They're not, you know, hiring someone to put their bananas on a freighter and send them halfway across the world. They are putting them on their own ship. They're using their own containers. They're using their own trucks. Um, and then they are moving these bananas around. And so this is what we're talking about when we talk about vertical integration. All of that is taken care of sort of in-house because they're so big they can afford to just buy a freighter ship. They can afford to just buy 18-wheeler trucks. And so all of this stuff is something that is really out of reach if you don't have the economy of scale on your side. So basically, small businesses don't have that luxury. I can't like know the inner workings of Equifruit, but I'm guessing based on their size that they have to actually procure some logistics services at some point. So logistics meaning just, you know, moving things around essentially. So they're going to have to like work with an importer or somebody who's able to actually 
do the freight part where they get the bananas from, I think she said they were coming from Peru. So she's got to um, get someone to get the bananas from Peru to Montreal, which is where they're located or, or wherever. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter, but um, somewhere in Canada. And then they have to get those bananas to each company. Um, will the companies sometimes be bigger than you and therefore they can take care of some of the logistics? Yeah, sometimes. Like you have cases where you have a small company and you're like, okay, well, I have to work with a distributor because I don't own trucks. I can't like send a truck to Costco with my bananas in it. So probably they would go to like a distributor and be like, hey, you've got trucks. You send out produce to people. Um, Will you like basically carry our bananas as part of your selection so that like Sobeys can order bananas and you can send it using your trucks to the Sobeys. So that's most likely what's happening in their case or in cases of companies their size. But in that whole process, they have to then use other people's services to get the job done. So they're not what's called vertically integrated. They don't have, you know, from start to finish from like the time that the banana leaves the producer to the time that it's on the shelf in the grocery store, it has to change hands of custody as it were. Like it has to be in other people's hands at some point. They they can't just sort of have their company handling it the entire time in the way that a huge banana company could. That's, that's sort of a, a great example of, um, what vertical integration is. I thought that was a a fun thing to explain. Um, But also just sort of generally speaking, the economy of scale has a lot of different sort of like, if you think of it as a hand, I would say that vertical integration is like one finger of that hand. There's also just sort of like pricing and so on. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the ways in which if you have vertical integration, for example, you just pay less money. If you have a big company, you're going to have a certain number of things that you have to account for in the price of your product or your service. It could be a service company, but I'm going to mostly talk about product-based companies today. You're going to think about when you're costing a product or when you're thinking about like, how am I going to price this product? You're going to think about the cost of the product. You're going to think about the overhead that you anticipate. So things like staff, rent, um, you know, uh, advertising expense, like those types of things. You're going to think about what's called the cost of goods sold. So it's like things like how much um, in a year are you writing off to theft and spoilage? How much are you writing or like how much does freight cost? That's part of cost of goods sold. Um if you are vertically integrated, freight is very little because you're you're really the freight charge. You're not hiring someone to do freight services for you. The freight charge is basically the cost of fuel. Whereas you, you know, obviously like you have to hire people to drive those trucks or to captain those ships or whatever, but that's more under like staff. It's not really freight per se. Um, and if you have dedicated staff to do that, you can really cut costs uh, as opposed to hiring somebody else for that service too, because of course, every time you hire somebody, they also are hoping to make a profit on that service. So basically, when you have a small company, prices um, are especially important for your products and services because products and services are your main source of income. They're like the main way that you make money. And that's like 
pretty key to all of this. So I want you to keep that in mind as we're going through that if you're a small business, so like take Rosette for an example, we're a small business, our main income is from products and services, from products specifically, <laughs> not services so much from products, like we sell fair trade goods. Um, but if we were like a, say, you know, a graphic design business, it would mostly be from like selling graphic design services, right? So that's what you, that's what you mainly make money on as a small business. So for example, I'm going to use this, and this is a real example. Um, there's a chocolate bar that I sell that comes from um, Oxfam Fairtrade in, in Belgium. And so this chocolate bar is about, it's a 50 gram chocolate bar. It's like a what they call like a snack size bar. It's like, it's, it's sort of the size of what you would see if you're like at the convenience store and you kind of look down, there's those shelves upon shelves of like chocolate bars ready to like tempt you to open your wallet. Um, so it's about that size. It cost me a dollar. Okay. This bar cost me a dollar from the, the Oxfam folks. That's what it cost after conversion and all of that. So these are Canadian dollars, by the way, (laughs) we're in Canada, they're Canadian dollars. But it doesn't really matter because, like, I'm going to use the same currency throughout, so it'll be easy to compare. So don't worry. So that $1 chocolate bar, when I divide up sort of the cost that it cost me to hire someone to, like, like move the stuff from Belgium to Canada, to Ottawa, um, because also I don't own my own trucks. Like, it's not that I don't own my own ships. Like, I don't own my own trucks either. <laughs> so I've got to pay somebody to take it across the ocean, but then also to take it from, like, say it comes in at Montreal, I have to get it, somebody to drive that to Ottawa as well. So for the freight cost, um, when you divide it up by, like, every unit of every product that I'm importing, um, and I consider like things like customs and like like all of the duties and stuff that I pay. It's about another 60 cents on the dollar after all of that is said and done. OK, um, and that is because I'm doing it on basically like a tiny scale. So I have to hire somebody basically to like ship my stuff. So it's not cheap. Like it is it is quite a like when, when people see the price of the stuff that I sell from the Oxfam folks, a good chunk of that is actually covering, like, not the actual price that I paid to Oxfam for that thing. It is covering the expenses associated with getting that thing to Canada. So when I'm thinking of the costing, I've got, okay, I've got my $1 chocolate bar. I've got 60 cents extra I have to add on for, like, moving it, paying the import fees, like, all of that stuff. Then... My customer who orders it, they might um, order enough to qualify for free shipping. So now I don't get um, any money to pay for the shipping. So that's going to be an additional expense. So, of course, there's the shipping itself. There's the box that I put it in. There's the, you know, the tissue that I put to pad things. There is like all these different the tape to seal the box, the label to put the shipping label on, um, all of this stuff. But let's imagine this person comes to my headquarters in Ottawa and picks it up in person. And I don't have to worry about any of that. Let's imagine. Except I also give a paper bag to customers who come in person. But anyway, <laughs> we'll imagine that doesn't exist. So we won't add anything there. When it comes to like overhead for a small business like me, it is actually, this is the hardest part to predict because I don't have like, like one, I'm a new business. So I only started in 2019 and two, I'm like a super duper niche 
business, if that makes sense. Like, like a really like, like, it's not like I sell, I don't know, like shoes that like every single person every day needs to wear shoes for the most part. Like, fair trade stuff is really a growing industry. So it's like hard for me to predict, okay, well, how much am I going to sell this year? Without being able to predict that, it's actually really hard for me to predict what percentage of each product should cover my overhead expenses. Because I do know approximately what my overhead expenses are going to be. Like, let's say I have like $10,000 of overhead expenses in a year, and I know I'm going to spend, or I'm going to, sorry, sell $40,000 in product, then I can be like, okay, well, every product has to account for like on every dollar, it's, I have to add 25 cents to cover, you know what I mean? Like it, it's clear that I can just sort of, if you're not good at math, I'm so sorry if I'm confusing you, but like, if you know what you're going to sell, then you can just say, okay, so for every X amount I sell, I'll just add a certain percentage on, it'll cover my costs uh, for administrative fees and things like that. But I don't know exactly how much I'm going to sell. So it's really hard to like add that on. So it's kind of a guess, to be honest. Um, So what I have done for my best guess is about 15%. About 15% because I have like lower overhead than some people because I do work out of my apartment. So I don't have to pay like a huge amount of rent to like rent a big office and warehouse and like whatever. Um, So like it's a little bit less than some. So I just kind of guess that on the dollar about 15% covers that overhead. Thankfully, (laughs) I'm not a manufacturer, so I don't have to think about like what it costs me to package things worth a hoot. So like if you're a manufacturer who like makes the actual chocolate, you have to pay someone to like design and create and apply wrappers and stuff around your chocolate bars and things like that. So, um, so thankfully I don't have to worry about that. It already comes prepackaged to me because I'm just a retailer. So, with no profit whatsoever. So as a, you know, I'm a, I'm not an employee. I'm a, I'm a business owner, right? So like if I make any money, it's because it's profit, not because it's, I'm not getting a wage, right? So with no profit whatsoever, that chocolate bar after I consider all of those things, my best guess is it costs me $1.75. Okay. So I can then sell it for let's say like $1.99 or $2.49 or something, and I can get a little bit of profit on that chocolate bar is sort of like how that pricing might look uh, if I am uh, pricing it using this sort of scheme, okay? But if I'm big business, so imagine I'm like Costco or like Whole Foods or like just like a humongous business. That same chocolate bar, let's say it costs them a dollar. Now, <laughs> I say, let's say it costs them a dollar. I say that because there are situations where big companies will approach wholesale like it's it's time to haggle. So like they'll go there and they'll be like, hey, we'd like to carry your products. But like also we're Loblaws. So like we're big. What are you going to give us for like wholesale price? And the company will be like, oh, well, wholesale price is normally like, you know, a dollar a bar. And then they'll be like, yeah, but we're Loblaws. So for us, it's 75 cents a bar. And they'll just sort of like, like, be like, we're going to pay you partly in exposure. Or like, if you want to sell, you know, however many 
hundreds of thousands of units a year, then you're going to give us a better price. And oftentimes these small companies will cave. And so this is something that is like incredibly frustrating about um, how a lot of large companies are sort of like flexing on these little companies is that this happens all the time. But anyway, we're going to assume <laughs> for this example, we're going to assume that this big company paid a dollar just like I did for this chocolate bar. Okay. Now they have to get it from Belgium to Canada. Well, that's fine because they bought a whole slew. They stuck it on a truck. They brought it to port. They put it in containers. They put it on their own freight ship. They f- sailed it across the ocean <laughs> and They got it to Canada, they stuck it on a truck, and they distributed it through the country to the various places where they're planning to sell it. Great. So that whole process, because it is so streamlined and because they have ownership of all those things, they don't have to pay anyone else to do those services. They only have to cover the cost of fuel and whoever has to staff those things. But because they're fully dedicated to their company, they can pay them essentially whatever they want. So they don't have to worry about that. And so... This whole process that costs me typically about like 60 cents on the dollar probably costs them about like a third of that. So let's say 20 cents on the dollar. With their overhead, they have a lot less guessing than I do. And the reason for that is because they have so many different sales avenues typically. Like they have like long-term huge contracts with like massive retailers typically or like distributors or like they just like sort of have years and years and years of data of like how much they've sold every year. So like there's certain security that they have in their business where they're like, oh yeah, we're not going to sell less than $3 billion this year. We know that we'll sell at least 3 billion. We might sell seven, but we know we'll sell at least three. So it's not like a guessing game because they can just sort of like, guess for the worst case scenario. Um, and they, they have like a pretty good idea what they're going to sell. So there's a lot less guessing for them. But the other thing too, is that goods and services are not the only source of income or the main source of income necessarily for huge companies. That's going to sound totally nuts, but the amount of money because of the size of their company is absolutely bananas. It is absolutely bananas. And we're going to talk about some of that stuff right now. So if you're a huge company, you have income from investments. So you have just like millions and millions of dollars lying around. They're not lying around. They are invested typically. They can be invested in properties. They can be invested in the stock market. They can be invested in a lot of different ways. But the millions and millions of dollars that are available to this company they are doing things that are either saving or making them money constantly. So they're not just sitting there idly. They're doing calculations of like, okay, like, are we like, maybe they are still paying for certain services. Okay. Could we just like buy a plane or like, you know, like these are the types of things that they're thinking about because they're like, they just have access to so much money. And so that money isn't just sitting there idly. That money is constantly working for them. Whereas like, if we think to ourselves as like, if I think myself as the owner of Rosette, like, oh man, 
if I could just like buy a freight ship to get all that stuff from Belgium to Canada, it would save me like thousands of dollars a year. I know I'll just buy a freight ship. Well, no, I won't. I don't have like $6 billion sitting by to like, you know, buy, (laughs) buy a freight ship. I can't, that's not an option for me. So if you're, if you're a big company, that is absolutely the kinds of conversations that are happening and decisions that are happening behind the scenes. And that money that is there makes all of that possible and just sort of multiplies the money that's coming in. The other thing is that a lot of people don't know this, but licensing revenue is huge for large companies. Large companies can charge a really, really hefty price tag to license their brand. So like, for example, let's say that you're you're designing a t-shirt and you want to use like the font that I don't know is, is like a proprietary thing of Costco. They can basically like sell that to you for a fee. Um, you want to use a photo that is like from Costco. They can license that to you for a fee. All of these different things, because they're so high profile, all of these different things, they can actually license to you for a fee. And so a lot of these companies will do that. That is something that I think a lot of people don't realize. So like all of these different things are ways in which that they can make money because they kind of have that like fame factor, if that makes sense. The other thing is that the bigger the company is, the less taxes they normally pay because they can afford to hire tax attorneys and like tax specialists to like basically find every possible way to avoid paying taxes. So like Amazon does not pay taxes. So if you listen to Megacorp by uh, Jake Hanrahan, which is a really great podcast too, you should definitely listen to Megacorp. Um, I can link it in the in the show notes. But he actually calculates how much percentage of their income or their revenue that um, Amazon paid in, I think it was like 2020 or 2021. And it is absolutely bananas. It is absolutely bananas how low it is. It's like 0.01% or some some nonsense like that. It's like bananas for the size of company they are. Whereas like you and I, as people who make like a few tens of thousands of dollars a year and we have families and like, you know, we're just like working people who are trying to make ends meet, like we pay probably like 10 to 15% taxes, right? Anyway, you got to listen to that podcast. It's it's very illuminating. So basically, all of these different things, it kind of makes it unimportant if they exactly cover their overhead. Like they don't have to do the sort of like mental gymnastics that I'm trying to do to figure out like, okay, well, um, I'm going to have these expenses, but like how, how much, how many thousands of dollars will I sell in my pre-sale? Because I do like pre-sales for my wholesale customers. Like how much am I going to sell then? How much am I going to sell like around Christmas time? Like how much am I going to sell during fair trade? (laughs) Like all of this stuff and trying to guess at all of this. And so they're not doing that because it doesn't matter because they have so much money coming in from like licensing out their logo to put on like a a hot topic t-shirt or whatever, you know, like it doesn't matter. And so if that's the case, they've paid a dollar for the chocolate bar. Their freight probably cost them about 20 cents. So they could still sell that chocolate bar for like a dollar 50 and make a profit. And if you recall in our calculations last step, (laughs) For for Rosette, it cost me $1.75, and that's if I don't make any profit whatsoever. So, like, it really makes a huge difference in, like, how you're able to compete with these big companies because, like, they just have every odd stacked towards them. 
it's all sort of done in their favor. I think it's important to educate consumers about these disparities because I think they really just don't understand why your local health food store charges more for the same product. And this is why, because they haven't gotten a discount from the company who sold them that chocolate bar. They haven't gotten, you know, a a zero dollar tax refund this year. You know, these are these are really huge disparities and they affect everyone who's below a certain company size companies that are smaller than say like a mid to to large company but particularly you know if you're a big huge corporation these things are accessible to you and they're absolutely not accessible to to small companies so that's a bit about like retail i guess like that's like a retail example but i wanted to also do a manufacturing example and part of the reason for that is that a lot of people don't have an understanding of how the inner workings of business work. And I think when you have that understanding, it's easier for you to understand why businesses charge what they do, why businesses make the decisions that they do. These types of questions come out and you can kind of answer them when you have an understanding of of how economy of scale works in manufacturing. Okay, so in terms of manufacturing, mainly you know, if we're talking about really big businesses, they will own the factory or plantation where the products are actually produced. So if they're a clothing company, we're talking about a factory. Or if we're talking about like, mostly like consumer goods, we're talking about a factory. But if we're talking about produce, then we're talking about a farm, right? Or like a plantation. And when that's the case, they don't have rent to pay. And they're not really like, paying others for their services. All they have to do is hire staff, but they they can hire whoever they want because they own the place and they can like decide to put this factory or plantation or whatever in any part of the world. They can find somewhere that doesn't have good oversight. They can find somewhere where the standard of living is really low and they can pay really low prices. Maybe it's not regulated super well. They can, even if they're in Canada, they can often they qualify to hire um, migrant workers. If you can hire people who are vulnerable, which often they do, then they'll, they'll work for a low wage. And so they save money there. When they're purchasing materials, so it could be if it's in farming, it could be things like seed, it could be fertilizer, even like the tools that they're using if they have to buy like in bulk, you know, obviously you're going to get a discount if you buy 100,000 rakes compared to like if you buy two rakes. (laughs) Um, With raw materials, things like cotton or fabric, if you're in like textile manufacturing, for example, like if you're making clothing, um, they can buy a lot at a time. And I mean, a lot, like a lot. And so obviously, like when you buy in bulk, you get a discount. And this is something like even when you're like, if you're in the grocery, and you have like, let's say you have like a tiny jar of jam, and it's like four bucks, and it's like 100 milliliters of jam, it's just tiny, tiny jar of jam. And it's like four bucks. If you buy the one liter jar of jam, it is not $40. It's not 10 times the price just because it's 10 times the volume. It's like $8, right? So you get like a huge discount on the jam just because you got a big jar of it. Um, and so this is this is a similar thing too. Like with your sourcing your raw materials, it's just like in retail. It They do it at all levels of the supply chain. If you get, you know, let's say a hundred tons of cotton, you're going to be paying less than if somebody comes to you and says, Hey, can I get two kilos of cotton? It's just the reality. 
Um, so an example of this, and I'm going to, you know what? I'm going to go back to soap because it's what I know. Okay. I'm going to give an example of an actual manufacturing business, which is my soap business. So we're a home-based business and we only have to, like, if, if we're going to have a home business, the only reason we would have to rent is if our facilities don't like suit what we're doing in some way. So for example, in Ontario, if you're a food business, you have to have a like health inspected kitchen that is not lived in, in order to produce food for sale. So for example, if you're an apartment, you're, I mean, the chances of you being able to do that are very, very slim. But if you're in like a single family home and you have like an unfinished basement or something, you could finish your basement. You could set up a kitchen in there. You could have the health inspector come and like check out your kitchen, make sure it's great. And that could be used only for your business. And that would be allowed. That would be totally fine. But you wouldn't be allowed to like live in that kitchen. You'd have to have your own separate kitchen upstairs where you actually, you know, your family would come and cook and do all that stuff because you can't like live in the kitchen, if that makes sense. So if you were like, imagine that our business was a food business, what we would have to do is we would have to find someone to let us use their up to code kitchen. So sometimes what happens is like you can see like small businesses will sometimes let people use their kitchens after hours. Like there's a bakery in Ottawa I know of that uh, lends their, their kitchen to another small business to use after hours. I don't know if they charge money for that, but maybe they do. Um, And there's like other people who can use like um, things like facilities in the church or something because nobody lives in the church. Right. Sometimes you can get like your local church or something can like rent out the kitchen to you or what have you. But thankfully, because we're a soap business and not a food business, we don't have to do that. So, but that's just something else to keep in mind. Um, So we're based in Canada and in Ontario, the minimum wage is $15 per hour. So when we hire people, we have to pay $15 an hour. That is the minimum that we can pay. We can pay more, but we can't pay less. Okay. When we buy materials, we buy them wholesale. Um, but not in industrial quantities because we're too small. So we go through a couple hundred kilograms of oils in a year, which sounds like a lot, but actually it's like, I'm thinking about it now and I'm like, oh no, it's going to be, it's going to be even more next year. <laughs> like I'm in my brain cause we're really growing a lot this year. Um, so if you think of like one of those um, jars of coconut oil that you get in the grocery, that's like about a liter that's like around, a, it's actually a little less than a kilo, but let's say that's a kilo. We go through like a couple hundred of those in a year, just of coconut oil. So, and uh, we use several different oils. So we probably, we probably do use close to a ton of oil in a year, um, but it's many different oils that we use. So we usually buy them like 10 to 20 kilos at a time. Um, that's sort of like the scale that we're at right now, but big companies would buy like containers at a time, like literal tons at a time. And they might even own the logistics. So if that's the case, they would only pay for like the coconut oil. They wouldn't pay for like someone to move it and everything. Cause again, they would like possibly own the ship, own the trucks, etc. I'm talking about like really big companies like, um, I don't know, like Dow or like, uh, you've got, um, what's it called? Unilever and so on that are like really big companies that make, uh, like bath and body products and stuff. The next, the next thing I wanted to mention, and this is, I think this is really key and something that people have no idea about and I wanted to share. Um, we make soap and when you make soap, that produces two different substances. So in the bar of soap, there is 
the actual soap molecules, which are kind of like a detergenty thing that like washes things, that cleans things, right? And then there's glycerin. And glycerin is actually really moisturizing. So like handmade soap is actually very moisturizing because big companies process the glycerin out and they um, leave just the soap molecules basically. So it's you're basically using detergent instead of like actually nice moisturizing soap. Um, and then they sell the glycerin for profit. And glycerin is actually quite valuable. And so sometimes you can, they can actually get a better price for the glycerin than for the actual product that they're making. So like if it's like a bar of soap or what quote unquote soap that they're making, they can process out all, process out all the glycerin and sell that bar and they might get like two bucks for the bar and they might get like five bucks for the glycerin. <laughs> it's bananas. Like it's, it's actually incredibly profitable to do that. But the problem is we're a tiny company. We don't have like the machine to chemically separate the glycerin from the soap because when we make the soap, it just is in a bar. And because we can't do that, that revenue stream is completely unavailable to us. So that means that we have to go back to this model of basically everything that we have as revenue is coming from the sale of products. We don't have the opportunity really to sell byproducts in the way they do. Another example of this is when you have, um, I don't know if you know Marmite. Okay, listen, I have English relatives and like, no offense, but it is the most vile thing. Makes a delicious vegan gravy though. Pro tip, it makes a delicious vegan gravy. But Marmite is this like tar-like spread that is really popular in Britain and it tastes kind of like motor oil and it is a byproduct of it's really high in b12 actually but it's a byproduct of um making beer basically so you make something like guinness and you have this like byproduct that comes off which is the the marmite essentially and that stuff can then be packaged and sold as a spread for sandwiches for people who um have masochistic palettes. Um, and so, but it's a very popular dish actually in, in Britain. So that's another example of like whoever's making that Guinness or that beer or whatever, they're able to then use that byproduct. They can sell that off. People can put it in little pots and, and, and sell it. And these little jars will give them income. And so that's a value and it can be sold and it's, it's a byproduct. It's not actually the beer that they're making. Unfortunately, that's not really available to super small businesses often because you need like often like a either a chemical or a mechanical process that you need like special equipment for or something. But there's certain things that the bigger the business gets, <laughs> the more they either save or earn money. And a few examples of that shipping rates. So Amazon pays practically nothing for shipping. Whereas, so when, when a small company like Rosette offers free shipping, so we offer free shipping over hundred dollars, it's not that I don't pay for shipping. It's just that at a hundred dollars, it starts to approach a place where I can afford to use the profits to pay for shipping. Um, or <laughs> I hope I can, because again, it's all guesswork, right? I don't know how much I'm going to sell every year. Also, it's sort of like a thing that companies will do to incentivize people to order a little bit more at a time. Um, because, you know, if you're if you're going to save on shipping, if you add another $3 to your cart, why would you not? And then that's another product that the company sells. So that's like good for everyone. So 
this is something that companies do, but it's not that we don't pay shipping. Like we pay shipping. And actually, I usually pay more than the flat rate, even when people pay the flat rate. It's a $15 flat rate. And there have been times when um, I actually have lost money on orders, even when they pay flat a flat rate because of just like how much it is to ship. It's uh it's it's one of the biggest expenses actually for an online business like Rosette because you have to offer that shipping and consumers don't really understand that you know the free shipping is just like something that we're extending to them not something that we actually get like it's not like I have an arrangement with Canada Post where like if I send a parcel so big like it'll be free or something. Um but the thing is that like when you're a small business, you can sign up with Canada Post, for example, and you can be like, I am a small business. And they're like, oh, we'll give you shipping savings. And it is the 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 amount of savings that they give you are like really small. Like I save probably less than 5%, even as a small business, like registered as a small business. Whereas like I'm very sure that Amazon is not paying hardly anything for shipping. So yeah, so so you do pay lower shipping rates. Like when I signed up with, um, what's it called, Canada Post, they actually asked me how many parcels I ship in a month. And based on that, they actually decided that I only get like a tiny <laughs> bit of a discount because I wasn't big enough. But if you said, oh, I'm shipping like 100,000 parcels every month, they'd be like, oh, okay, here's half off, you know, and, and that's just the way the world works. You know, it's it's for consumers, for businesses, like it works that way all across the board. And so the bigger you are, the less you pay for shipping. The same is true of taxes. If you're a big company, you have tax specialists, you do not pay taxes. Worth a hoot. They they find ways, they find loopholes, you don't pay taxes. And it's horrifying because if people who had all of these gazillions of dollars actually paid taxes, maybe people who were down on their luck, who had a poor income or like maybe they had a lot of um, trouble, like they're, they have a disability or like they're out of work or whatever, like maybe they would be able to afford to, to survive <laughs> if like more services and infrastructure were in place. When you think about it, it's true. Like why couldn't public transit be free if Jeff Bezos paid taxes? Why couldn't that be the case? And like, would anyone, would anyone suffer? I don't think so. I feel like the world would be a little better if that happened. But anyway... I'll get off my soapbox. Um, the bigger you are, the less you pay for bulk materials and products. So the more you can sort of um, negotiate or like haggle the way I was talking about before. I know for a fact that both Loblaws and Costco do this with small businesses. They approach them and they say, I'm a big business and we're paying you partly in exposure. So you're going to give us a discount. I know for a fact that both of these these uh, companies do that with fair trade businesses in Canada. I've, yeah, I have knowledge of this. What that does is like now, again, you go into your local um, health food store and the same like chocolate bar that is $3 there is $2 in Loblaws. So it's like already they're a smaller business, but they're struggling because they've got to charge more and everyone's like, oh, well, I'll just go to the cheaper one. So this is why it's important to support small, even if it's a little bit more expensive. The other thing is that with, um, like, if you're, the bigger you are, again, the less you would pay for things like licensing fees, because, again, they offer to sort of almost pay an exposure. So, like, say you are a person who um, makes, like, uh, let's say you make fonts, and Costco wants to, like, um 
use your font in like their new flyer or something. They could approach you and be like, hey, I know it's normally like X amount to license this for commercial use, but could you give us a discount? And that designer might be like, oh man, this is like Costco. This is big. So I'm going to get like a lot of visibility from this. And like probably a lot of other people will come and try to like buy my font because of it. So like, yeah, okay, I'll give them a discount. So like then Costco is saving money there too. So like it just sort of, it's from all different angles. And last but not least, logistics. So the more in-house logistics you have and logistics, again, is just like moving things. So like if you've got like your own freight ships, if you've got your own trucks, if you've got your own, um, I mean, heck, you could have your own airplane. I'm sure Jeff Bezos does stuff with airplanes, you know, like that, that saves him money. You know, you can, you can buy those things and staff them and they're a dedicated staff. So all you have to do is pay their salary and fuel and do as much as you want with them. So it's basically, you know, the more in-house it is, the less it is. And the bigger you are, the more you can keep in-house. You can be that humongous banana company where the bananas never leave your hands until they're on the grocery store shelf. That's, I think, what I had for today. This is a really long episode. I'm so sorry. But I just, I feel like this is an important topic to talk about, like, what the economy of scale actually means and, like, the ways in which something that seems completely, you know, normal and accepted can actually be abused in a lot of ways when it comes to, you know, small businesses trying to compete with larger businesses. It is incredibly important for us to remember that the more money someone has, the more power they have. So, of course, if we have, you know, something that is based on the size of a business, we can't necessarily trust that those large businesses are going to use their powers for good. And oftentimes what we find is that they do not. (laughs) So um, it's really important to support small businesses. Small businesses are really the lifeline of so many people. You know, if you think about the number of um, employees that are, you know, working at these small to medium sized businesses that are like family owned and so on versus like, you know, the number that are working at a massive company, like if you add up all the other companies, like there's so many more people employed in the private sector, in smaller to medium sized businesses, than these massive multinational businesses, at least at least domestically, um, because they outsource a lot of stuff, you know, these small businesses are creating jobs. And they're doing things typically in a way more ethical way and not just because they want to, but sometimes because they have to, you know, there's really no, no way for them to, you know, coerce a small fair trade company into giving like a discount on their product. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's really, the whole thing is, is really a challenge. And, and I really encourage you to, uh, to make sure that you're supporting small and local as much as you can. Um, but in particular small, even when we're buying things that are, you know, maybe not available locally or what have you, the smaller we can go, the better. So yeah, that's, that's it for today. Thank you for joining me. And, um, once again, please do let me know, um, how much you love the podcast on, uh, Apple podcasts. As I say, I see that way more of you are subscribed than leaving reviews. So like, please leave a review. <laughs> um, 
And uh, yeah, I really appreciate it because it really helps out. And again, um, it's really hard for me to compete with people who don't already have this massive platform, uh, like these studios that, uh, you know, start these podcasts as though they're independents, but they're actually like, you know, deeply embedded in in uh, show business already. <laughs> and, then, and then I'm just lost in the, in the shuffle. So I appreciate, uh, I appreciate everyone who's already done so, but if you haven't, please do uh, leave a five-star rating and review the podcast on Apple podcasts. I really, really appreciate it. Other than that, I think that's it for today. So I look forward to seeing you in the next one and bye-bye for now.